Um, I got a, a few of my former students here, and they can attest that my day job is pretty much storytelling as well. <laughs> um, I'm inspired by Maureen. I changed the opening to my story, and I too will sing. When I left my home and my family, I was no more than a boy. That's all. <laughs> I was 17, and I had grown up in northern Minnesota where it's very cold. And like Aparna, I too was scared to leave the state but wanted to get as far away as I could, so I landed up in southern Minnesota. <laughs> I was at a college that, like my hometown, was mostly white mostly wealthy, and I felt a little out of place. The first person I saw was Steve. I knew Steve because I had worked at a summer camp with his brother and I'd met his parents, and he gave me a big smile and suddenly I felt a little bit better and a little bit less alone. A couple of days later I met Mark, a fresh-faced young man from Fremont, Nebraska. I didn't know it that first week, but those two guys would be really, really important people in my life, especially over those next few years of college. Steve was a year ahead of me, but he was really a century ahead of me. His first relatives had come to that college in 1887. He knew his way around, and he kind of took me under his wing. He stopped me from taking classes from lousy professors and pointed me in the right direction. He pointed me towards a study abroad program in France that he'd been on, promised me it would be great. And most of all, he role-modeled working hard to get what you want. He was pre-law, and I would often run into him at closing time at the library and draw a little bit of strength from his example. Mark, meanwhile, was a classmate of mine, but he was like a ready-made grown-up. He read the Wall Street Journal and talked about things like earnings and stock prices, and he kind of inspired me to lift my head up. He took spring break ski trips to places like Montana and Colorado. Now, I didn't have any money and I didn't know how to ski, but inspired by Mark, I eventually did learn to ski and I was glad for it. And he was a big cheerleader of mine. He would congratulate me when I got my first summer internship. He would give me a high five when I got all A's. And it was great to have a friend like that. I love these guys. They were definitely role models and inspirations to me, but I also kind of hated them. I kind of envied the ease and the grace with which they moved through life. And that was no, at no time was that more evident than when we were leaving college. Steve left a year ahead of us. He immediately got engaged to his hot redheaded girlfriend, went straight to law school, and from law school went straight to a job at a big prestigious firm. He was on his way. Meanwhile, I lived in a house with Mark during our senior year, seven guys, and None of us with really a clear idea of what was coming next. But Mark was cool and relaxed. He got a job at a prestigious Chicago bank in a training program that was preparing him for senior management and great things. I eventually schlepped off to graduate school and quickly was at the bottom of my class. And I spent hours and hours on the phone with Mark complaining and whining and expressing my self-doubts, and he was encouraging. Told me that what didn't kill me would make me stronger, and I stuck with it. And when I got out of school, soon enough I started a business. Now, I hadn't studied business. I didn't know much about business. And again, I spent hours on the phone with Mark, 
asking his guidance about how to fund things and how to manage cash flow and all the things they didn't teach in engineering school. Mark, meanwhile, had gotten married to his hometown sweetheart, bought a fancy house in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago. He was vice president at the bank. He'd started a family. And I think he found my little problems with my little three-person business very, very amusing. But he never laughed at me. And he was always there. He always picked up the phone when I called. He always called back if he wasn't home. And eventually, I met a beautiful brunette girl from California, just like the Led Zeppelin song said, and got engaged, and I asked Mark to be the best man in my wedding. He asked what we wanted to do for a bachelor party, and off the top of my head, I said, why not a ski trip? So off we went to Colorado with a half dozen of my friends, and one day, skiing on the mountain, at the very top of the mountain, at lunchtime, we ran into Steve and his hot red-headed wife, and some of his perfect-looking friends. And it was great to be reunited with my old friend and mentor from college, with my best friend and best man, Mark, at the top of the mountain, literally. And these guys had families and big houses and successes. And I was hoping to do somewhere near as well as I entered this new phase of life, of marriage and family. I didn't know that neither one of them was going to be there to help me with that. A couple of years later, I went back to Minnesota to attend a wedding in December. And by the way, weddings and funerals are the only reason I go back to Minnesota in the wintertime. <laughs> and at this wedding, I heard some really disturbing news about Steve. Steve has a personal injury attorney. He started his own practice after that prestigious firm. And somewhere along the way, he began to settle cases on behalf of his clients and cash the checks deposit them in his own bank account, and tell the client that he was still negotiating with the insurance company. Most of the clients were disabled and elderly. He had embezzled over $800,000 in total. And eventually, on the brink of madness and despair, he turned himself in to the U.S. attorney. He was serving a seven-year prison sentence in South Dakota. I couldn't believe this story, but it was verified by Google. <laughs> and I was shocked, and I was shaken, and I was sad. But I did comfort myself with the idea that nothing like this would ever happen to anybody that was really close to me. At this point, Mark had grown distance. He, he was harder to get a hold of after I got married. He was, had started his own hedge fund, and he was putting together investor groups to buy banks and glue companies, and he was testifying in front of the Federal Reserve Board, where I'd get a call back in a day or two every single time for 20 years. Now it took a week or a month or two months, and I was hurt. I felt abandoned, and I took it all pretty personally. In August of 2010, I received a phone call from my good friend Jim, another member of my wedding party. He asked if I was sitting down, and I said that I was. He said, I've got some bad news about Mark. Mark had made some bad investments, and somewhere along the way, rather than face up to the losses, he began to falsify the records in his hedge fund. It should be said that I had scraped together a little bit of money by that time and put it into this hedge fund. Now, 
when 2008 and 2009 hit and the market went south, all of his investors, many of his investors asked for their money back. But because he'd falsified the records, they thought they had twice as much money or three times as much money or four times as much money as they actually did. And he had no choice but to pay them out. $28 million was gone. $7 million of his soon-to-be former father-in-law's. But that wasn't the worst of it. At that point, he had taken out two $2 million lines of credit in the names of two of his best friends. One of them was another member of my wedding party. All of this had been found out. This was all going to hit the Wall Street Journal the next day, and Jim wanted me to hear it from him before I heard it in the papers. I hung up the phone, and I felt horrible. I felt for one, an immense loss of money. I was $100,000 poorer than I thought I was before the phone rang. For two, a huge, immense loss of trust. I didn't know what to do. I sat there stunned for a while. And then I did the only thing that made any sense at all. I left for Burning Man. <laughs> where there was no money and I hoped to regain a modicum of trust. I came home from Burning Man, and a week later, I was sitting in my kitchen with my wife. Now, when you come home from Burning Man, and I, it's hard to believe that all of my friends who came to the show tonight are burners, <laughs> by chance. But as you know, when you come home from Burning Man, everything's a little bit foggy. You're not quite up on the details. Meanwhile, my wife is talking to me about painters and brunches and birthdays, and it just sounds like the teacher in a Charlie Brown cartoon. Wah, wah, wah. Wah, wah, wah. And then she concludes this monologue by saying, and that means you need to get your Burning Man shit out of the garage today. <laughs> well, that much I understood. <laughs> I was down in the garage, shaking things out and throwing things in piles and taking things out of bins when Mark walked in my garage door. He had driven all night from Boulder, Colorado, to come to tell me his side of the story, and I didn't know whether to hit him or to hug him. After some reflection, I welcomed him into my house, and I listened to his story for the next 72 hours. He had lost all the money. He had lost his wife. He had lost his relationship with his three beautiful children. He would soon be going to federal prison. And I felt a great number of things. I felt an anger. I felt a shame. And I felt a deep level of compassion for somebody that had been my best friend for a very long time. But the one thing I didn't feel at all was envy. Thank you. <laughs>